Here in this second chapter of 2 Corinthians, the apostle gives an apology, that is a defense of himself. He gives an apology for his delayed visit to Corinth, and he speaks of the triumph of the gospel through its preaching. Here now the reading of God's holy word, inspired by his spirit, inerrant, infallible in all of its assertions, and profitable for us. 2 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came... I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, He hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, he ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ." and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, words of life and of power. Here in verses 1 through 4, we have the apostles further account reasons why he did not come yet to Corinth. Verse 1, he mentions that he did not come to you in heaviness again. This word heaviness can mean physical pain, mental or spiritual sorrow, grief, sadness, or anxiety. 
Rather, he says he wanted joy from them. And what would that joy be? Well, you recall he wrote them a letter and he gave them specific directions how to deal with the fornicator, not by being puffed up with a false mercy, but by excluding him with a lawful severity, a compassionate and wholesome severity, and that this would produce repentance in this man. And then Paul would have what? Joy upon his repentance. He didn't want to come In other words, while they still had not resolved this disciplinary matter. Notice verse 2. Who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? Okay, the, the apostle was sending this letter. It was to lead to his sorrow and repentance and then to the apostle's gladness upon his repentance. Remember, they were puffed up. I wrote this same unto you, he says in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he said, Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, this is very interesting. You'll notice at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, the apostle says that he wrote this letter, this letter of 2 Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, but to all the saints which are in all Achaia. In other words, though Corinth was the principal city, yet it was written to a regional church. And that's important to understand. Corinth was one for the whole. We'll look at figures of speech in our sermon this afternoon, God willing. This is a figure of speech where the principal city is put for the whole region of Achaia, the regional church of Achaia. And notice this, he says, this second letter he wrote after the first to these same people. In other words, 1 Corinthians, contrary to many people's understandings, was not to one local congregation. It was not written to one assembly of believers at Corinth. No, rather, it was written to the entire, we might say, regional church of Achaia. And this second letter is a follow-up to the churches and all the saints of Achaia, concerning this disciplinary matter that was to be handled. He says, I wrote this same unto you. Well, who are you? You are the church of Corinth and all the saints at Achaia, in other words. Now, he did not want to have sorrow, he says in verse 3, from them of whom I ought to rejoice. Now, this sorrow would be because he had to use severity with them. You'll remember, he asked them, shall I come to you with a rod or with the spirit of meekness at the end of 1 Corinthians? What is your preference? Do you want me to be harsh with you, which would bring heaviness to himself? Or do you want me to rejoice because you have listened and become obedient in all things? That's the question. Verse 4, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly to you. Now this is the goal of church censures, we call them where someone is corrected for a fault, an unrepentant, grievous sin, publicly committed. They refuse to repent. When you come to them, they will not listen. Then a censure comes to recover them, to move to repentance, to restore them to the church. And all this is motivated by love. Now, some people are excessively cruel in their mercies. And they are wicked people who pretend to be merciful, but actually are excessively cruel. Such people will say, oh, well, 
that poor woman can't have this baby, so what's the solution? She has to look out for herself. We are merciful to this woman, so let's snuff out the life of her baby. Is that actually merciful? No, it's destructive, it's wicked, it's hateful. It hates the woman for not holding her accountable for her deeds. It hates the child who for other people's sins now must die. No mercy whatsoever. Some people think that church censures or excommunication or even lesser measures, that these are cruel, these are harsh. But notice Paul says this is the reason why he's doing this, so that they would know how much he loves them. He has a true and a godly love, not a wicked or an indulgent love. He loved the church of Christ. Remember, leaven will spread among the congregation, he said. If you allow this person to be unrepentant, what will other people think? That they should perhaps do likewise? Oh, it's okay. Nothing's going to happen. I'm fine. I see this person going off into whoredom. The church does nothing. I guess it's okay. I guess God approves because the church approves. No, it's like leaven. You have to cut it off, he says. Remove the old leaven so it doesn't spread. What about the glory of God? God's people are to be holy. People look at your good deeds, Jesus says, and they glorify your Father in heaven. What if Christians don't live according to God's standards and they're never disciplined or chastened by the church? What will people think of your God? Do you remember the uh, injunction to women concerning being homemakers, loving their husbands, loving their children? Why is that? So that the name of God and his doctrine are not what? Blasphemed spoken against by the adversaries of God who say, you Christians say you believe in the true God, but your women are wild and manlike. Is that Christianity? No. Is that the order of nature? No. And the heathens know that. Oh, you're unnatural. You wicked Christians. You don't obey the Bible. You worship graven images. Your women aren't in order. You commit fornication. You look like whores. Your men's are ir irresponsible and lazy. You're not godly. And so the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because his people will not take the time to do what he says. So when the church allowed this man, in their notion that somehow the grace of God means now you can commit incest because grace destroys nature, they brought shame on the name of Christ. They showed no love to the man committing the fornication and they let leaven run through the whole church. Is that loving? Well, to the ungodly, to the wicked, to those who say that feels are reals, that their emotions are more real than the truth, of course, that's mercy to let that person go on in their sin. Parenting 101 from Dr. Spock. Just let your kid do whatever they want. Just let them go on and follow their heart. Isn't that what Disney says? Follow your heart. No. That's not loving, that's hateful. Let us then think of church censures in their proper light, lest we be offended by acts of love as if they were acts of cruelty. But notice, there are two ditches that Satan has. One is, let them go on in their sin, no discipline necessary, indulge them. Puff yourself up with pride and say how merciful and gracious you are by letting him go on in sin. Well, what's the ditch on the other side? What does Satan want the church to do? Oh, well, we need to actually correct this. 
let's exclude this guy from the church for good. Even if he comes to repentance, let's keep a stiff arm just to show that we really, really mean it. Verses 5 through 11, the apostle then details the restoration of the offender who is under this censure and the avoidance of the devices of Satan. Verse 6, the apostle says, sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many. It's enough, he says. The presbytery had inflicted a sufficient punishment. And what happens if there's too much severity? Verse 7 tells us. You ought to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, despondency, no hope. I'm excluded for good. There's no grace left for me. I'm too sinful. That's the idea. Here's this ditch. Be too lenient with him. Make him think his sin's okay. And here's the other. Now that you've corrected him, keep on correcting him after repentance. Did you know that in the early church they had disciplinary canons drawn up? And for certain sins, you could be excluded for three years from the fellowship of the church. Some, seven years. Some, 15 years. Some, for the rest of your life. Can you imagine? Being such a person who had sinned in such a way, do you know what this led to? Hypocrisy, self-righteousness, externalism, formalism, favoritism. And what do you think corrupted the church? Externalism, formalism, hypocrisy. This excessive rigor, not recognizing that we are all of like passion, that we all are liable to the same temptations. And upon repentance, forgiveness is to be given. So then, we must not fall for Satan's tricks. Censures are intended to lead to repentance and the restoration of the offender. If that goal is met, the censures cease. Calvin notes, Paul is satisfied with the repentance of the offender. The ancient bishops, on the other hand, by making no account of his repentance, have issued out canons as to the repentance during three years, during seven years, and in some cases, during life. Now, if you ever are involved in a church disciplinary case, if you know someone who is disciplined and it's lawful why they're being disciplined, they're unrepentant, sin is scandalous, keep this in mind. It's for the good of that person that the church will discipline them. It is an act of love. And if you yourself are disciplined, if I myself am disciplined, let us bear this in mind. This is an act of restoration. It's an act for my good, for the glory of God, for the blessing of the entire congregation so that I might not partake with the world of the judgment of God. He says... Rather, forgive him and comfort him. Verse 7. Now think about this. Forgive him. Comfort him. Do you remember when Jesus gave the keys to his disciples? Some people think he gave them to one person. Peter. That's it. He has all the keys. He is the supreme judge of all matters, ecclesiastical, disciplinary, etc. That's not the case. Here the apostle Paul is saying... You, the Achaean Presbytery, you forgive him. And if you forgive him, I will give my vote to second what you say. I will forgive whatever you've forgiven. That's what he's saying. I will concur in your judgment. 
If there is credible repentance demonstrated, you don't have to bind them any longer and exclude them with the key of discipline. You unlock the door and let them back in. You have the key of acceptance. The keys of the kingdom then do not hang on Peter's chair. They hang in every lawful presbytery. All the governors of the church, presbyteries in particular, here the Corinthian or Achaian church. It was not merely a one church by itself. It was not one man by himself in Rome. It was the collected churches together of Achaia. He says this is even why he wrote the letter to him, to them, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. He was testing them, in other words. He wanted to see if they would clear it up. That's why he didn't come. That's what he's saying. For your sakes, forgive I it in the person of Christ. If you make a judgment, Achaean church, I will concur in it for your sakes. What you say, I say. And he says he would do this in the person of Christ. Now this word for person is very interesting. It literally means a face. And if you're familiar with the Greek literature, prosopon, it usually means literally the face of a person, but it also can refer to the person himself, their countenance, in other words, their face. Same in Hebrew, pene is the face of God, peniel. But here, the prosopon of Christ, it could mean two things. One is his actual person, Christ's person. I will forgive as his representative, as you have judged, I will concur in that judgment, and therefore Christ is making the judgment. Christ is loosing what you have loosed. That's what he's saying in the person of Christ. Or it could be this, before the presence of Christ, how has Christ treated you, Achaean believers? How has he treated me, the Apostle Paul, who once was persecuting the church, wreaking havoc on the saints, and yet I was shown mercy? You then must show mercy to him. We must in all things then forgive even as we have been forgiven. And we'll look at this more from Romans 6. We're to love as we have been loved. As grace has been given to us, so we are to give grace to others in the person of Christ or in the presence of Christ, recalling his mercy to us, even for public and scandalous sinners. If they repent, he says, forgive them in the presence of of Christ our Lord. Why? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. If you're lax, he has an advantage. He gets the leaven into the rest of the church. If you are excessively severe and won't recognize repentance and won't be merciful to those who repent, you also are falling into Satan's trap. He wants him, that person to be cut off from the church and he wants the rest of you to pretend like you're good people. And that guy's really bad. And his sin's so bad, we can never forgive it. What does that say about your sins? Your sins might not be that bad. If this guy can sin so he never gets back in, what do you think about the rest of us? Well, pretty good. Not that bad. Not like him, which breeds self-righteousness. And who gets the advantage with self-righteousness? Who gets the advantage with the despondent excommunicate? Well, Satan gets the advantage in both cases. And so he says, you must forgive. You must receive him back. Do not be 
too lenient. Do not let the leaven spread in the church, but do not be excessively harsh and not recognize his repentance. Oh, well, you didn't repent hard enough. You need to say some more Hail Marys. You need to get on your knees. You need to blah, 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 whatever it is. God doesn't have these things. If the man manifests, he's not living with his father's wife anymore. He's repented of the sin. Let him back in. We are not ignorant of his devices, he says. Satan has devices. He has schemes. He thinks of ways that he can overthrow the faith of Christ. He hates the church of Christ. And scripture tells us about these plots. He seduces the sin. Then he wants you to stay in your sin. And then when you're confronted, he wants you to harden yourself in your sin. And then if you repent, he wants you to despair that there's no hope for you. You see? He's using both sides of the argument. The justice of God he'll use. The mercy of God he'll use. He has devices in mind. And we are not ignorant, he says. Then we see verses 12 through 17. Another reason why Paul had not come to Corinth yet. Another apology. The triumph of the gospel. Preaching there in Troas. He came to Troas. This is on the east side of the Hellespont. This little... Uh, waterway that separated Macedonia from Asia Minor. It was on the east side of that little waterway. Some believe that this was a, the site of ancient Troy, Troada, or Troas. He had no rest in his spirit while he was there because he had not found Titus. Titus was sent to Corinth, probably with the first epistle. Titus went as well, and he was going to report back to Paul what had happened with that epistle. Did they obey? Did they excommunicate? Did they become orderly instead of disorderly? He had no rest in his spirit because he wanted to know their state. He cared about them. But notice, as he was there preaching the gospel in Troas, he was not defeated. He said that God is to be thanked who always giveth or causeth us to triumph in Christ. When the ancient conquerors came home, they would build these arches of triumph. We have destroyed the temple at Jerusalem. What did they build? A triumphal arch after they destroyed it. If they sacked a kingdom, if they took over more lands, some great general would come back, often with his arch enemy under his feet. And you would smell the smells of the sacrifices. You would smell the petals of flowers being dropped from above. And that smell would smell really good to the general and his men, wouldn't it? We are the champions, the victors we have overcome. What would it smell like to the adversaries who are being destroyed? Death. That's the smell of death. Those sacrifices, those rose petals, those garlands, that reeks and stenches of death to those who are being destroyed by the conqueror. That's what Paul's saying here. We are uh, unto God a sweet savor of Christ, both to those who are saved and to those who perish. To the one, he says, verse 16, the savor of death unto death. This is the smell of a rotting corpse. This is the idea of corruption or uncleanness, as we'll see in Romans 6:19. But to the other, he says, a savor of life unto life. You smell those sacrifices. You know you will partake in that meal. You know you are the champion and the victor. And Christ Jesus is the one who leads us. This same triumph is for doom of the adversaries and deliverance of those in the armies of the Lord. 
He says then, in light of all these things, even though the adversaries will not hear the word of God, we don't change the message. That's the idea here. There are people who corrupt the word of God, he says. Literally, this means to engage in retail business with the implication of deceptiveness and greedy motives. The Geneva Bible says, making merchandise of the word of God. Well, the Bible says certain things that people will think stink. That will smell like a rotting corpse to them. Don't say those things. They don't want to hear it. Make merchandise of the word of God. Present to them in a slick way to persuade them to come on over with all the sweet and beautiful things. Paul says we don't do that. Because you see, this is the message we've been entrusted. Who is sufficient for these things? We're not like these who water down the gospel so that they can make a profit, turn a buck here and there. No, he says, we're not making merchandise, but as of sincerity, as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul feared God. Paul trusted in Jesus, and therefore he did not need to change the message to suit the corrupt desires of men. Let us then fear God. Let us trust in our Savior Jesus Christ. And what will that produce? Honest dealings. Speaking the truth sincerely in love. Not corrupting the word of God. Seeking to turn it to your advantage. No, turn it to the glory of God. And if that means that some say it stinks. I don't want that stench of death. Well, that's victory. That's triumph. That's Jesus Christ leading his people in triumph. People should know that when they see you, what they see is what they get. You're not selling them one thing and giving them something else. And thus far, the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 2.